0: This is Misdemeanor and Misconduct, the podcast. Miss and misters were back in the closet, this time appropriately dressed with the shotgun secured. I think this week's gonna go a little bit more smoothly. I did find out that it's not as uncomfortable to record alone as I thought it might be, which was kind of silly considering I come from radio where all you do is sit in a booth and talk to yourself by yourself. The only thing that's difficult is when I have Jenna with me, obviously we get to have a conversation to get the ball rolling. It's not so fun to have a conversation by yourself and working my way into the headspace to deliver stories to you guys isn't something that I know how to do on my own. So I was googling earlier quarantine questionnaires hoping to inspire some I just about said inspire some inspiration you guys. This is why I can't do this job by myself. Um hoping to to find some inspiration of in what I could talk about. And most of what I found was things to ask your partner in quarantine which I'm guessing most people are at the point where they don't want a questionnaire. They don't want to be in the same room with their partner anymore. If you do, kudos to you. Then the rest were almost daily checklists of just checking in with yourself. And they were all lovely. They were very optimistic, which I enjoy. And I actually heard the other day that researchers compiled basically all the tweets that in some way reference. I believe not COVID especially, but isolation and quarantining. It was overwhelmingly positive in a direction that they didn't think it was going to go. The numbers were actually very high. Most people are feeling really optimistic, which I think is great. I think that there's a bit of a a shift happening. There's a lot of people working through some feelings that I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this affects everyone in the long run. That said, those questionnaires did not inspire much. A lot of it was, you know, what are you grateful for? What are you missing from everyday life, what do you think that you can do without now in everyday life, which is pretty surprising. I definitely think that there's things a lot of us have realized we wouldn't rush back to, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing to find out. But the one question that I loved was, what would be your perfect day outside of isolation? And a friend of mine actually texted me the other day and chronicled exactly what her perfect day would look like And it was so lovely and simple in a way that I was like, yes, that is all I want. I want the simplicity of, I want to send a message to everybody in my phone who I love and say, I'm going to this place, I'm having a glass of wine, come and meet me and we'll figure it out from there. I don't even have specifics of what I wanna do. I just wanna be with my people and I'm gonna open mouth kiss everyone the second this is over, I've warned everybody. I think it's gonna be a real renaissance for, for a lot of people. I keep joking that it's going to, um, we're all going to react oppositely of how we should. We should come out of quarantine and probably continue to distance as best as we can and integrate back into regular life slowly. But I think a lot of people are just going to have like a resurgence of being 21 and a little bit slutty and really drunk all the time. So it'll be interesting to see (laughs) the effects that that has on us, but... My perfect day right now would just look exactly like that. I would be outside with all of my people and we would have wine and we would talk about everything and we would touch hands a lot. It would be very innocent and a lovely good time. Concoct your perfect day, write it down, focus on that, we're going to get there soon enough. In the meantime, I'm here to keep you entertained with some stories. Having decided to do an episode a week, I realized pretty quickly that I might burn myself out kind of consistently putting myself in the headspace of violence and negativity because it's easy when you can kind of take a break and you can remove yourself from it to to go into your daily life and leave the house and go to work or do whatever we are regularly doing alongside the fact that we do the podcast and the research that we do. Not having that break from it and just having to kind of sit in that is not enjoyable. I started doing research on a story that ultimately was heinous in a way that was not enjoyable. And I don't even think that I'm... I don't think I'm speaking out of turn. It had a lot to do with the death of children in an orphanage in the 1800s, which is not... Which is both really depressing and and the details weren't that interesting and I was so overwhelmingly brought down by it. I thought, okay, I'm going to make a compromise with myself and I'm going to do some stories that are a little bit lighter. So today, we are going to be taking a look at some stuff that is supernatural. And when it comes to the spirit realm, things are a tad more complicated than one might think. Since the early Victorian era, spiritualists, which are students of the paranormal, have been trying to compartmentalize the various types of energies that exist in the world. Through folklore, scripture, and recorded accounts of activity, they found a number of definable supernatural species. So there's angels and demons, then there's ghosts and spirits, which are the disembodied souls of the dead trapped between our world and the next. There are elementals, which is ancient entities associated to specific forces of nature, And then there are poltergeists. Poltergeists, to me, are fascinating. And I think I actually mentioned in the first episode we ever recorded that one of the ways that I think I knew from a young age that I would kind of grow into being a person that had an interest in these topics was there was this book, I think it was called Ghosts of Canada. And it was in the corner in the library at my elementary school and it was for the older grades. But I remember finding it pretty young and every time we went to the library I would push myself into this corner and go through this book and I just loved it. It's funny, the other day my roommate was talking about how she was really into Greek mythology when she was a kid. And I was kind of like, yeah, weren't we all? Aren't all kids that are, are now into, like, true crime and ghosts and otherness? Weren't we all in a phase of Greek mythology at some point? There is something about all of those things that are sort of connected in a strange way. But there are people for sure who are invested in true crime that don't love the supernatural. And for, for those of you, I do apologize that this story is maybe not going to be for you. So let's talk a little bit about poltergeists. There are certain characteristics of them that align with that of just spirits and ghosts, but there are several distinguishing traits that differentiate them from your average haunting. The largest thing being perceived motivation. So when it comes to ghosts and spirits, the impression by spiritualists is that they just want someone to know they're there. But the intent is not malicious. And with poltergeist, the activity is always confined to the home. So it's always domestic. It's never going to be like a train or even a hospital like we hear with ghosts and spirits. And their activity is always characterized as mischievous, so it's either intentionally bothersome and at times harmful. But what are they really? Well, they believe that they are these mischievous entities that are either rambunctious demons or a unique variety of dark spirit that feeds most often off of the energy of troubled teenagers. So in the words of psychic researcher Harry Price, a poltergeist is, quote, an invisible, intangible, malicious, and noisy entity that is able, by laws yet unknown to our physicists, to extract energy from living persons, often the young, and to direct intelligently the stolen power. So another theory put forward by many parapsychologists is that poltergeists aren't supernatural entities or faked activities, but acts of unconscious telekinesis. In essence, they believe that specifically Teenage girls possess a mysterious energy generated by hormones and emotional turmoil that in times of stress can manifest in physical, psychic abilities. Um, I don't want to disparage or discredit anyone's work, but there is something about these theories that doesn't sit well with me. There's the movie The Conjuring 2, and if you know anything of that story, it's the story of the Enfield poltergeist. You may remember that the parapsychologist who worked on that case was a man named Maurice Gross. He worked closely with Janet, who was the young woman at the center of the story, and a lot of what he believed and theorized was very similar to Harry Price, who just defined poltergeist. And this theory that they have that centers around poltergeist in some way being linked to teenage girls' hormones is something that a lot of people perpetuate in cyclical research. And the issue there for me is that when it comes to the actual science and study of these things, a lot of it is very baseless. Um, It's not considered a a quote-unquote real branch of science. A lot of this is just the ideas of middle-aged men who think they're geniuses. And who am I to say that they're not? I can't come up with anything better. But it's sort of a tale as old as time. You know, women are hysterical. Their hormones make them crazy. Teenage girls get their periods. And then on the path to becoming women, which is the least understood enigma to men, they begin to attract and expel negative object-moving energy. It just seems very convenient and historically we do love to make women the scapegoats and I think it's worth considering that most of these theories were born in a time where there was very little known about women's reproductive health aside from the fact that it was just kind of a bloody mystery. While there definitely is a trend with poltergeist activity centering around young women, I don't know exactly what that is and there's something about those theories that I just don't love. But who am I to say? So, with that knowledge in our back pockets, let's explore one of the most notorious cases of reported poltergeist activity. Forty minutes southeast of Moncton, New Brunswick, nestled among the shores of the Bay of Fundy, is the beautiful town of Amherst, Nova Scotia. It's an idyllic looking town. When you pull up photos of it, it looks like any small sort of seaside town you see in movies, with quaint brick buildings lining a main street and early 1900s character homes. Think uh, practical magic, but less American. Now it's known for its beaches, its friendly little shops, and fresh seafood restaurants, but in the late 1800s it was known for something far more sinister. Today we're going back to 1878 to explore the Great Amherst Mystery. Esther Cox was what some people may refer to as an unusual girl. She'd been born a tiny thing at only five pounds, and only three weeks after she was born on March 28, 1860, Esther's mother died from birth complications, and shortly after, her father remarried and moved to Maine, leaving her in the care of her grandmother. Under the influence of her grandmother, she turned out to be oddly serious for a child in what some considered to be rather old-fashioned for 1860. An acquaintance of hers once wrote, Esther's disposition is naturally mild and gentle. She can at times, however, be very self-willed and is bound to have her own way when her mind is made up. If asked to do anything she does not feel like doing, she becomes very sulky and has to be humored at times to keep peace in the family. However, all things considered, she is a good little girl and has always borne a good reputation in every sense of the word. So given that this story is pretty dated, there are time gaps and details that we miss out on along the way but by the age of 18, Esther was living in a cottage that we presume was owned by her older sister Olive and her husband Daniel. The cottage was shared by the couple, their two young children, another sister to Olive and Esther named Jane, a brother named William, and then Dan's brother, John. While we know that she was always seen as a little different, Esther was living a rather peaceful and quiet life that she seemed to enjoy, but in the summer of 1878, something terrible happened. She met a man. His name was Bob McNeil, and Bob was a local shoemaker who worked with her brother-in-law, and Esther, by most accounts, was rather fond of him. One afternoon, he asked her to take a carriage ride with him. She did, and they took off into a gloomy wood nearby. While on the ride, Bob pulled out a revolver and ordered Esther out of the carriage. He made his intentions known, and she refused, which didn't seem to matter much to Bob. But at the last moment, the sound of an approaching carriage rumbled in the distance and scared him back into the carriage, ordering Esther back in with him. He turned around and, physically unharmed, brought Esther back to the cottage. That first night, she cried herself to sleep. In the days that followed, she became increasingly despondent and inconsolable. But in the months leading up to this, Bob had been a regular visitor at the house and his sudden disappearance led Esther's family to believe that on the day of the carriage ride, the two had just been in a fight and decided to part ways. Because no one was a particular fan of Bob's, they decided not to press the issue, but staying silent on what had happened caused Esther to spiral further into depression until things took a turn in a strange direction. On the evening of September 4th, 1878, Esther and Jane, who shared both a bedroom and a bed, were settling in for the night. They'd turned out their lamps and were about to drift off when Jane felt something crawling beneath the covers. She quickly moved herself away, lighting a lamp to investigate what she was sure was a mouse that had gotten into bed, but the two girls found nothing. They settled back in for the night, waking a few times to hear a rustling beneath the bed. The following night, the noises became louder. Knowing there was a box of patchwork underneath them that would have been easy for a small critter to get inside of, the girls relit their lamps and pulled the box from beneath the bed and into the middle of the room. Suddenly, the box began to shake and shot itself a foot in the air, flipping around and spilling the contents onto the floor. The girls screamed and Dan, their oldest sister's husband, came running into the room. They tried to explain what had happened and that no, there had not been a mouse inside the box, but he only shrugged it off and laughed, as did the rest of the household. In the coming days, Esther would come down with a sudden fever. One night she decided to turn in early, but a few hours later woke and began to call for Jane, repeatedly screaming that she was dying. Jane woke, lit the lamp and found her sister's face was a deep blood red, her eyes large and terrified as she trembled. Jane called for help and Dan and Olive rushed in. With nothing else to do, they tried to calm her and Olive helped her back into bed where the color drained from Esther's face as she began to sob, telling them, "I'm swelling up and she'll certainly burst. I know I shall." She wasn't wrong. Her hands and feet had become alarmingly swollen and her complexion in just a moment was deathly pale and icy though she had been burning only seconds earlier no one knew what to do as they watched esther writhing in pain her body steadily swelling suddenly a deep sound like the cracking of thunder filled the room and shortly after three loud cracks came from beneath the bed and esther went limp her color and temperature returning to normal her confused family members gathered around her but she seemed to be breathing and sleeping deeply So everyone returned to their respective rooms. In the morning, aside from a lack of appetite, Esther seemed fine and actually didn't seem to recall anything, so her family, entirely bewildered, decided not to say anything. But just four nights later, it would happen again. While Jane and Esther slept, the sheets were ripped from the bed and landed in the corner of the room. Jane, who'd been awake to witness what seemed to have been a pair of invisible hands clutch and throw the sheets, fainted from fright, while Esther, awoken by it, started to scream. The rest of the household charged into the room. Olive grabbed the sheets and attempted to settle them back over her terrified sisters. But almost immediately, they flew off and into the corner of the room. Stunned, everyone stood silently until the pillow Esther had been resting on hurtled across the room and into the face of Daniel's brother, John. With nothing else to do, they resettled the items onto the bed and sat on the edges to keep them down. As a series of knocks came from below the bed, they noticed Esther was swelling again. But as soon as it started, it seemed to stop. The room settled, the swelling went away, and Esther once again fell asleep peacefully while the rest of the house lay awake, horrified and confused. The next morning, Daniel called on the local doctor and laid out exactly what had happened. The man only laughed and told him he was sure nothing of the sort would happen if he was around. He arrived at 10pm, an hour after Esther had gone to bed. He examined her and determined she had, quote, suffered a tremendous shock. But as he spoke, the pillow beneath her head began to move to the side until it was just barely tucked under her and then moved back to its place. He turned to those in the room, asking if everyone else had seen it. They had, and John moved to her side to hold the pillow, but despite his best efforts, it slid away from him. Then the knocks from beneath the bed started. The doctor examined the area but couldn't determine a source. He walked to the room and the sound followed him beneath the floorboards. After a minute of loud knocking, the sheets flew into the corner again, followed by a sharp scratching sound. When they turned to look, a message had been carved into the wall behind the bed. It read, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill. Over the next three weeks, things would only get worse. Violent banging noises resonated throughout the house, and Esther was often pelted by objects thrown by an invisible force, from small potatoes to large wooden planks. She was prescribed morphine to calm her completely shattered nerves. The doctor who'd supplied the morphine continued to try to help. During one of the usual sessions of banging and loud knocking, he went outside of the cottage and found that from the street it sounded as if someone was standing on the roof and pounding it with a sledgehammer. One night late in the month, Esther had a seizure while in bed and became cold and rigid. Her family gathered in the room with her, and moments later she went on to explain what happened in the woods between her and Bob McNeil, something she was still keeping to herself. But when she recovered the next morning, she had no recollection of telling them, though she tearfully admitted it was true. Shortly after, Jane concocted a theory that whatever was with them could listen to and understand them. She'd paid attention throughout the last few days to the series of knockings and believed they often came in response to something someone in the house had said. Daniel decided to test the theory and called out, asking for whatever it was to knock once for every person in the room. And it did. A series of loud, violent, house-shaking knocks for every person. Over the next three weeks, the family would work out a method of communication with the entity. Knock once for no, three for yes, twice for unsure. In the next month, the cottage would be visited by several clergymen of different denominations who'd heard what was happening and wanted to see for themselves. One Baptist minister, a well-educated man, theorized that following Esther's traumatic experience with Bob McNeil, her emotions served to act as a type of electric battery, emitting invisible flashes of lightning that could cause small thunderclaps. Another man, a Methodist preacher, witnessed a number of startling manifestations in the cottage, like a bucket of cold water on the kitchen table beginning to bubble and froth as it boiled. By the end of October, people from all over the Maritimes were making the trek to visit the home, all with their own suspicions. Many people believed it was a hoax. Some thought that Esther was some sort of witch who was hypnotizing people into believing they saw and heard what she wanted them to, but most left with the unsettling feeling that these manifestations were very real. Things continued on in the same way until December, never quite worsening. Then, Esther contracted diphtheria, and in the two weeks it took her to recover, everything stopped. When she was feeling better, she made a trip to visit another sister in New Brunswick. During her time there, she experienced nothing, and back home in the cottage, things stayed silent. When Esther returned, Jane moved out of their room in hopes that it would continue to encourage the entity to stay away, but it only made things worse. In addition to the knocking and the object throwing, lit matches began to fall from the ceiling. One day, a dress of Esther's that had been hung from a door rolled itself up, slipped under her bed, and burst into flames. Another time, Esther and Oliver were alone in the house making butter when a fire started in the cellar. Unable to get the flames under control, they ran to the street to call for help. A stranger came running and smothered the fire with a mat from the cottage's dining room. Before they could thank him, he was gone. As the winter went on, Esther began to hear a voice from the entity, the only family member it seemed to speak to or was capable of hearing it. One night, while the family relaxed together, Esther suddenly stood and pointed toward the corner. She shook as she told the family to look. It's the ghost, she said. Don't you all see him? They did not but the entity spoke to Esther, telling her that it would burn the house down unless she left that night. Although no one else had heard anything, Daniel was hesitant to take a chance and asked a neighbor who'd been greatly interested in the cottage's happenings if he and his wife would take Esther in. They agreed, and she moved into their home later that night. Several weeks passed without incident, and it seemed both Esther and the cottage were rid of whatever had plagued them. But one day, as Esther scrubbed the floor of her new home, the brush suddenly vanished. She went to the lady of the house to ask if she'd seen it. They all searched, and once they'd given up, the brush fell from the ceiling, narrowly missing Esther's head. Another six weeks went by without incident. Then, mysterious fires started to appear in the house, and the neighbor asked Esther if she could instead spend her days in the pub that he owned. She agreed, and the activity followed, which in some ways was validating because patrons were witness to many strange moments the worst of which was a night where a small pocket knife belonging to the neighbor's son drove itself into Esther's back. It was removed and returned to the boy, but almost immediately flew through the air again and back into the wound. In the spring, a military officer who'd heard what was happening invited Esther to St. John. During her three-week stay, she was visited by a number of scientists who worked through a new way of communicating with Esther's pesky spirits. They would ask a question and then recite the alphabet, marking every letter until it spelt out a word. In this fashion, the spirit named itself as Bob Nickel, claiming to have once been a shoemaker, another time to be a woman named Maggie Fisher, and then Peter Cox, supposedly a relative of Esther's who died 40 years earlier. As time went on, three more spirits would come forward as Mary Fisher, sister to the previously mentioned Maggie, Jane Nickel, spelt differently than um, Bob Nickel, and Eliza McNeil. Off of her trip to meet with the scientists, Esther spent eight weeks in the Nova Scotian countryside completely at peace. But of course, upon arrival back to Amherst, things came back worse than ever. By this point, an American actor named Walter Hubble had moved into the cottage as a paying boarder. He'd just finished a theatrical tour in Newfoundland and hoped to document Esther's story, which is where most of the known details come from today. Over the course of six weeks, he would witness items vanish, levitate, and relocate themselves. He saw multiple spontaneous fires break out. He was pelted with objects and often found things that went missing would fall from the ceiling. As per his description, there wasn't always an evil feeling around the activity, but more an air of mischief as if everything was meant to annoy those in the home. He also noticed that the entity or entities remained silent on Sundays. Using the communication style originally worked out by the family, Walter began to speak with the spirit. He asked the time and how many coins were in his pocket. When he received an accurate answer for both, he carried out a full conversation, answered via a series of knocks. Question. Have you all lived on the earth? Yes. Have you seen God? No. Are you in heaven? No. Are you in hell? Yes. Have you seen the devil? An emphatic yes. On June 28, 1878, the home filled with the sound of a trumpet. The noise continued from morning until night when a small trumpet fell from the ceiling and into one of the rooms. Neither Walter or the family had owned a trumpet. Though he'd written he intended to donate the instrument to a museum, no one knows what actually happened to it. By midsummer, with activity heightened, Esther and the family decided that for the safety of everyone, she would have to move out. She and Walter left the cottage and embarked on a speaking tour, which was short-lived given audience reactions. Most people believed the entire affair to be a hoax, and Esther was often heckled and booed out of her speaking engagements. Eventually, she moved in with a family friend, but soon after her arrival, their barn burned down, and she was accused of arson, which led to a prison sentence of four months. Esther was released after one month for good behavior and married a man who'd come to visit her during her imprisonment. The torment faded from the faintest remnants to nothing at all, and by the beginning of her marriage, Esther Cox was completely rid of the spirits that had plagued her. She would end up marrying twice before passing away in 1912 at the age of 52, leaving behind the legacy of one of the most well-witnessed alleged poltergeist hauntings on record. Walter Hubble would go on to publish The Great Amherst Mystery, a true narrative of the supernatural, which included an affidavit signed by all 16 witnesses. The case has since been investigated and examined by all sorts of researchers who make a range of claims, from the entire thing being a hoax perpetuated by the family or the original investigators, to every detail being a true experience born from poltergeist activity. But as all these things go, the truth is open to the interpretation of your beliefs. And many questions remain. Esther may have been suffering from mental health issues that caused her to act out, or by the beliefs of some to have attracted a dark energy. She may have faked the entire affair, but even then, what can be said of the witnesses that claim it was an impossibility? The timeline supports the theory that this was something perpetuated by Esther, who either found healing over time or grew tired of keeping up the charade. All in all, that's all we have of the great Amherst mystery. Like I said, it's all open to the interpretation of your beliefs. I don't know how I feel. Poltergeist activity is one of those things that I find endlessly fascinating, and yet I have no real idea of what's happening with it. The logical side of me always imagines that it has something to do with mental illness, but then the physicality of it is where things get tripped up. There are certain things a person can pull off, definitely, but I mean, the scratching in the wall happening spontaneously, spontaneous fires, things happening when she's not physically there to make them happen, that doesn't make much sense at all. So... I don't have a great fully formed theory on this, but if you do, I would love to hear what you think about it. This is a short one for today because I'm going to be doing or have released already a longer episode that I'm recording to in one day. I promise that after these two come out, I'm going to go back to our, our more crime related themes. But we just needed a short break and I hope that you enjoyed and possibly fell asleep because that's some feedback that I have been getting. I have been putting people out, which I accept. I'll lean into it. So that was another episode of Misdemeanor and Misconduct. If you have any suggestions of stories that you'd like to hear, you can reach out to um, us on our social media pages or to me personally on Twitter, kcath23, or Instagram, k underscore Catherine. I guess that's it, that's all. And once again, I'm going to let Jenna do her sign-off. Goodbye, have a great evening.